on working out own salvation work, out your own salvation with fear, and trembling, for it is God that worketh, in you both to will, and to do of his good pleasure. Phil. 2 12-13. 1. Some great truths as the being and attributes of God, and the difference between moral good and evil, were known, in some measure, to the heathen world. The traces of them are to be found in all nations, so, that, in some sense, it may be said to every child of man, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, even to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. With this truth he has, in some measure, enlightened every one that cometh into the world. And hereby they that have not the law, that have no written law, are law unto themselves. They show the work of the law, the substance of it, though not the letter, written in their hearts, by the same hand which wrote the commandments on the tables of stone, their conscience also bearing them witness, whether they act suitably thereto, or not. 2. But there are two grand heads of doctrine, which contain many truths of the most important nature, of which the most enlightened heathens in the ancient world were totally ignorant, as are also the most intelligent heathens that are now on the face of the earth, I mean those which relate to the eternal Son of God, and the Spirit of God, to the Son, giving himself to be a propitiation for the sins of the world, and to the Spirit of God, renewing men in that image of God, wherein they were created. For after all the pains which ingenious and learned men have taken, that great man, the Chevalier Ramsey, in particular, to find some resemblance of these truths in the immense rubbish of heathen authors, the resemblance is so exceeding faint, as not to be discerned, but by a very lively imagination. Beside that, even this resemblance, faint, as it was, is only to be found in the discourses of a very few, and those were the most improved, and deeply thinking men, in their several generations, while the innumerable multitudes, that surrounded them were little better for the knowledge of the philosophers, but remained as totally ignorant even of these capital truths as were the beasts that perish. 3. Certain it is, that these truths were never known to the vulgar, the bulk of mankind, to the generality of men, in any nation, till they were brought to light by the gospel. Notwithstanding a spark of knowledge glimmering here, and there, the whole earth was covered with darkness, till the sun of righteousness arose, and scattered the shades of night. Since this day spring from on high has appeared, a great light hath shined unto those who, till then, sat in darkness, and in the shadow of death. And thousands of them in every age have known, that God so loved the world as to give his only Son, to the end, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And being entrusted with the oracles of God, they have known, that God hath also given us his Holy Spirit, who worketh in us both to will, and to do of his good pleasure, 4. How remarkable are those words of the Apostle, which precede these? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, the incommunicable nature of God from eternity, counted it no act of robbery, that is the precise meaning of the word, no invasion of any other's prerogative, but his own unquestionable right, to be equal with God. The word implies both the fullness, and the supreme height of the Godhead, to which are opposed the two words, he emptied, and he humbled himself. He emptied himself of that divine fullness, veiled his fullness from the eyes of men and angels, taking, and by that very act emptying himself, the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of man, real man, like other men. And being found in fashion as a man, a common man, Without any peculiar beauty or excellency, he humbled himself to a still greater degree, becoming obedient to God, though equal with him, even unto death, yea, 
the death of the cross the greatest instance both of humiliation and obedience. Phil. 2.5-11 Having proposed the example of Christ, the Apostle exhorts them to secure the salvation which Christ hath purchased for them, wherefore, work out your own salvation with fear, and trembling, for it is God that worketh, in you both to will, and to do of his good pleasure. In these comprehensive words we may observe, I that grand truth which ought never to be out of our remembrance, it is God that worketh, in us, both to will, and to do of his own good pleasure. 2. The improvement we ought to make of it, work, out your own salvation with fear, and trembling. 3. The connection between them, it is God that worketh in you, therefore work out your own salvation. I 1. First. We are to observe that great and important truth which ought never to be out of our remembrance, it is God that worketh, in us both to will, and to do of his good pleasure. The meaning of these words may be made more plain by a small transposition of them, it is God that of his good pleasure worketh, in you both to will, and to do. This position of the words, connecting the phrase, of his good pleasure, with the word worketh, removes all imagination of merit from man, and gives God the whole glory of his own work. Otherwise, we might have had some room, for boasting, as if it were our own desert, some goodness, in us, or some good thing done by us, which first moved God, to work. But this expression cuts off all such vain conceits, and clearly shows his motive to work lay wholly in himself in his own mere grace, in his unmerited mercy. 2. It is by this alone he is impelled to work in man both to will, and to do. The expression is capable of two interpretations, both of which are unquestionably true. First, to will, may include the whole of inward, to do, the whole of outward, religion. And if it be thus understood, it implies, that it is God that worketh both inward and outward holiness. Secondly, to will, may imply every good desire, to do, whatever results therefrom. And then the sentence means, God breathes into us every good desire, and brings every good desire to good effect. 3. The original words, tilde to tilde feline and tilde to interjane, seem to favor the latter construction, tilde to tilde feline, which we render to will, plainly including every good desire, whether relating to our tempers, words, or actions, to inward or outward holiness. And tilde to interjane tilde tilde, which we render to do, manifestly implies all that power from on high, all that energy which works in us every right disposition, and then furnishes us for every good word and work. 4. Nothing can so directly tend to hide pride from man, as a deep, lasting conviction of this. For if we are thoroughly sensible that we have nothing which we have not received, how can we glory, as if we had not received it? If we know, and feel that the very first motion of good is from above, as well, as the power which conducts it to the end, if it is God, that not only infuses every good desire, but that accompanies, and follows it, else it vanishes away, then it evidently follows, that he who glorieth must glory in the Lord. 2. 1. Proceed we now to the second point, if God worketh in you, then work out your own salvation. The original words rendered, work out, implies the doing a thing thoroughly. Your own, for you yourselves must do this, or it will be left undone forever. Your own salvation. Salvation begins with what is usually termed, and very properly, preventing grace, including the first wish, to please God, the first dawn of light concerning His will, and the first slight transient conviction, of having sinned against Him. All these imply some tendency toward life, some degree of salvation, the beginning of a deliverance from a blind, 
unfeeling heart, quite insensible of God, and the things of God. Salvation is carried on by convincing grace, usually in scripture termed repentance, which brings a larger measure of self-knowledge, and a farther deliverance from the heart of stone. Afterwards we experience the proper Christian salvation, whereby, through grace, we are saved by faith, consisting of those two grand branches, justification, and sanctification. By justification we are saved from the guilt of sin, and restored to the favor of God. By sanctification we are saved from the power and root of sin, and restored to the image of God. All experience, as well as scripture, shows this salvation to be both instantaneous and gradual. It begins the moment we are justified, in the holy, humble, gentle, patient love of God and man. It gradually increases from that moment, as a grain of mustard seed, which, at first, is the least of all seeds, but afterwards puts forth large branches, and becomes a great tree, till, in another instant, the heart is cleansed, from all sin, and filled with pure love to God and man. But even that love increases more and more, till we grow up in all things into him, that is our head, till we attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 2. But how are we to work out this salvation? The Apostle answers, with fear, and trembling. There is another passage of St. Paul, wherein the same expression occurs, which may give light, to this, servants, obey your masters according to the flesh, according to the present state of things, although sensible, that in little time the servant will be free from his master, with fear, and trembling. This is a proverbial expression, which cannot be understood literally. For what master could bear, much less require, his servant, to stand trembling, and quaking before him, and the following words utterly exclude this meaning, in singleness of heart, with a single eye, to the will and providence of God, not with thy service, as men-pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God, from the heart, doing whatever they do, as the will of God, and, therefore, with their might. F. 6.5. And see, it is easy to see that these strong expressions of the Apostle clearly imply two things. First, that everything be done with the utmost earnestness of spirit, and with all care and caution, perhaps more directly referring to the former word, with fear, smile. Secondly, that it be done with the utmost diligence, speed, punctuality, and exactness, not improbably referring to the latter word, with trembling. 3. How easily may we transfer this to the business of life, the working out our own salvation. With the same temper and in the same manner, that Christian servants serve their masters, that are upon earth, let other Christians labor, to serve their master, that is in heaven, that is, first, with the utmost earnestness of spirit, with all possible care and caution, and, secondly, with the utmost diligence, speed, punctuality, and exactness. 4. But what are the steps which the scripture directs us to take, in the working out of our own salvation? The prophet Isaiah gives us a general answer. Touching the first steps which we are to take, cease, to do evil, learn to do well. If ever you desire that God should work in you that faith, whereof commit both present and eternal salvation, by the grace already given, fly from all sin as from the face of a serpent, carefully avoid every evil word and work, yea, abstain from all appearance of evil. And learn to do well be zealous of good works, of works of piety, as well as works of mercy, family prayer, and crying to God in secret. Fast in secret, and your father which seeth in secret, he will reward you openly. Search the scriptures, hear them in public, read them in private, and meditate therein. At every opportunity, be a partaker of the Lord's Supper. 
do this in remembrance of him, and he will meet you at his own table. Let your conversation be with the children of God, and see that it be in grace, seasoned with salt. As ye have time, do good unto all men, to their souls, and to their bodies. And herein be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It then only remains that ye deny yourselves, and take up your cross daily. Deny yourselves every pleasure which does not prepare you for taking pleasure in God, and willingly embrace every means of drawing near to God, though it be a cross, though it be grievous to flesh and blood. Thus when you have redemption in the blood of Christ, you will go unto perfection, till walking in the light, as he is in the light, you are enabled to testify, that he is faithful and just, not only to forgive your sins, but to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 9 3 1 but, say some, what connection is there between the former and the latter clause of this sentence? Is there not rather a flat opposition between the one and the other? If it is God that worketh in us both to will, and to do, what need is there of our working? Does not his working thus supersede the necessity of our working at all? Nay, does it not render our working impracticable, as well as unnecessary? For if we allow that God does all, what is there left for us to do? 2. Such is the reasoning of flesh and blood. And, at first hearing, it is exceeding plausible. But it is not solid, as will evidently appear, if we consider the matter more deeply. We shall then see there is no opposition between these, God works, therefore, do we work but, on the contrary, the closest connection, and that in two respects. For, first, God works, therefore you can work. Secondly, God works, therefore you must work. Three. First, God worketh in you, therefore you can work, otherwise it would be impossible. If he did not work it would be impossible for you to work out your own salvation. With man this is impossible, saith our Lord, for a rich man, to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Yea, it is impossible for any man, for any that is born of a woman, unless God work in him. Seeing all men are by nature not only sick, but dead in trespasses and sins, it is not possible for them to do anything well till God raises them from the dead. It was impossible for Lazarus to come forth till the Lord had given him life. And it is equally impossible for us to come out of our sins, yea, or to make the least motion toward it, till he, who hath all power in heaven and earth calls our dead souls into life. 4. Yet this is no excuse for those who continue in sin, and lay the blame upon their Maker, by saying, It is God only that must quicken us, for we cannot quicken our own souls. For allowing that all the souls of men are dead in sin by nature, this excuses none, seeing there is no man, that is in a state of mere nature, there is no man, unless he has quenched the spirit, that is wholly void of the grace of God. No man living is entirely destitute of what is vulgarly called natural conscience. But this is not natural, it is more properly termed preventing grace. Every man has a greater or less measure of this, which waiteth not for the call of man. Every one has, sooner or later, good desires, although the generality of men stifle them before they can strike deep root, or produce any considerable fruit. Every one has some measure of that light, some faint glimmering ray, which, sooner or later, more or less, enlightens every man that cometh into the world. And every one, unless he be one of the small number, whose conscience is seared as with a hot iron, feels more or less uneasy, when he acts contrary to the light of his own conscience. So that no man sins because he has not grace, but because he does not use the grace which he hath. 5. 
Therefore in as much as God works in you, you are now able to work out your own salvation. Since he worketh in you of his own good pleasure, without any merit of yours, both to will, and to do, it is possible for you to fulfill all righteousness. It is possible for you to love God, because he hath first loved us, and to walk in love, after the pattern of our great master. We know, indeed, that word of his to be absolutely true, without me ye can do nothing. But on the other hand, we know, every believer can say I can do all things through Christ that strengtheneth me. 6. Meantime let us remember that God has joined these together in the experience of every believer, and therefore we must take care not to imagine they are ever to be put asunder. We must beware of that mock humility which teacheth us to say, in excuse for our willful disobedience, oh, I can't do nothing. And stops there without once naming the grace of God. Pray, think twice. Consider what you say. I hope you wrong yourself, for if it be really true that you can't do nothing, then you have no faith. And if you have not faith, you are in a wretched condition, you are not in a state of salvation. Surely it is not so you can do something, through Christ strengthening you. Stir up the spark of grace which is now in you, and he will give you more grace. 7. Secondly, God worketh in you, therefore you must work, you must be workers together with him, they are the very words of the apostle, otherwise he will cease working. The general rule on which his gracious dispensations invariably proceed is this, unto him, that hath shall be given, but from him, that hath not, that does not improve the grace already given, shall be taken away what he assuredly hath. So the words ought to be rendered. Even St. Augustine, who is generally supposed to favor the contrary doctrine, makes that just remark, qui facet en osi nobis, non salvabit en osi nobis plus he, that made us without ourselves, will not save us without ourselves. He will not save us unless we save ourselves from this untoward generation, unless we ourselves fight the good fight of faith, and lay hold on eternal life, unless we agonize to enter in at the straight gate, deny ourselves, and take up our cross daily, and labor by every possible means, to make our own calling and election sure. 8. Labor then, brethren, not for the meat that perisheth, but for that which endureth to everlasting life. Say with our blessed Lord, though in a somewhat different sense, my Father worketh hitherto, and I work. In consideration that he still worketh in you, be never weary of well-doing. Go on, in virtue of the grace of God, preventing, accompanying, and following you, in the work of faith, in the patience of hope, and in the labor of love. Be ye steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the great shepherd, of the sheep, Jesus, make you perfect in every good work, to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever, and ever. 9. The question is, what harm does it do? To adorn ourselves with gold, or pearls, or costly array, suppose you can afford it, that is, suppose it does not hurt, or impoverish your family. The first harm it does is, it engenders pride, and, where it is already, increases it. Whoever narrowly observes what passes in his own heart will easily discern this. Nothing is more natural than to think ourselves better, because we are dressed in better clothes, and it is scarce possible for a man to wear costly apparel, without, in some measure, valuing himself upon it. One of the old heathens was so well apprised of this, that, when he had despite to a poor man, and had to mind to turn his head, he made him a present of a suit of fine clothes. Hoitre pelos, cuicunc nasir voyabat, vestimentat abat prishaza.
The following is Biscayne's translation of this quotation from Horace Eutropelus, whom ere he chose to ruin, decked in costly clothes. Edit he could not then, but imagine himself to be as much better, as he was finer than his neighbor. And how many thousands, not only lords and gentlemen, in England, but honest tradesmen, argue the same way. Inferring the superior value of their persons from the value of their clothes. Ten. But may not one man be as proud, though clad in sackcloth, as another is, though clad in cloth of gold? As this argument meets us at every turn, and is supposed to be unanswerable, it will be worthwhile to answer it once for all, and to show the utter emptiness of it. May not, then, one clad in sackcloth, you ask, be as proud, as he, that is clad in cloth of gold? I answer, certainly he may, I suppose no one doubts of it. And what inference can you draw from this? Take a parallel case. One man that drinks a cup of wholesome wine may be as sick as another that drinks poison, but does this prove that the poison has no more tendency to hurt a man and the wine? Or does it excuse any man for taking what has natural tendency to make him sick? Now, to apply, experience shows that fine clothes have a natural tendency to make a man sick of pride, plain clothes have not. Although it is true, you may be sick of pride in these also, yet they have no natural tendency either to cause or increase the sickness. Therefore, all that desire to be clothed with humility, abstain from that poison. 11. Secondly. The wearing gay or costly apparel naturally tends to breed and to increase vanity. By vanity I here mean, the love and desire of being admired and praised. Every one of you that is fond of dress has a witness of this in your own bosom. Whether you will confess it, before man, or no, you are convinced of this before God. Do you know in your hearts, it is with a view to be admired that you thus adorn yourselves, and that you would not be at the pains were none to see you but God, and his holy angels. Now, the more you indulge this foolish desire, the more it grows upon you. You have vanity enough by nature, but by thus indulging it, you increase it a hundredfold. Oh stop! Aim at pleasing God alone, and all these ornaments will drop off. 12. Thirdly. The wearing of gay and costly apparel naturally tends to beget anger and every turbulent and uneasy passion. And it is on this very account that the Apostle places this outward adorning in direct opposition to the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. How remarkably does he add, which is in the sight of God, of great price. Than gold or pearls more precious far, and brighter than the morning star. None can easily conceive, unless himself were to make the sad experiment, the contrariety there is between the outward adorning, and this inward quietness of spirit. You never can thoroughly enjoy this, while you are fond of the other. It is only while you sit loose to that outward adorning, that you can in patience possess your soul. Then only when you have cast off your fondness for dress, will the peace of God reign in your hearts. 13. Fourthly. Gay and costly apparel directly tends to create and inflame lust. I was in doubt whether to name this brutal appetite, or, in order to spare delicate ears, to express it by some gentle circumlocution. Like the dean, who, some years ago, told his audience at Whitehall, if you do not repent, you will go to a place which I have too much manners to name before this good company. But I think it best to speak out, since the more the word shocks your ears, the more it may arm your heart. The fact is plain and undeniable, it has this effect both on the wearer and the beholder. To the former, 
our elegant poet, Cowley, addresses those fine lines, adorning thee with so much art is, but a barbarous skill, tis, like the poisoning of a dart, to act before to kill. That is, to express the matter in plain terms, without any coloring, you poison the beholder with far more of this base appetite, and otherwise he would feel. Did you not know this would be the natural consequence of your elegant adorning? To push the question home, did you not desire, did you not design it should? And yet, all the time, how did you set to public view a specious face of innocence and virtue? Meanwhile you do not yourself escape the snare which you spread for others. The dart recoils, and you are infected with the same poison with which you infected them. You kindle a flame which, at the same time, consumes both yourself and your admirers. And it is well, if it does not plunge both you, and them into the flames of hell. 14. Fifthly. The wearing costly array is directly opposite to the being adorned with good works. Nothing can be more evident than this, for the more you lay out on your own apparel, the less you have left to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to lodge the strangers, to relieve those that are sick and in prison, and to lessen the numberless afflictions to which we are exposed in this veil of tears. And here is more room for the evasion used before, I may be as humble in cloth of gold, as in sackcloth. If you could be as humble when you choose costly, as when you choose plain apparel, which I flatly deny, yet you could not be as beneficent, as plenteous in good works. Every shilling which you save from your own apparel, you may expend in clothing the naked, and relieving the various necessities of the poor, whom ye have always with you. Therefore, every shilling which you needlessly spend on your apparel is, in effect, stolen from God, and the poor. And how many precious opportunities, of doing good have you defrauded yourself of? How often have you disabled yourself from doing good by purchasing what you did not want? For what end did you buy these ornaments? To please God. No, but to please your own fancy, or to gain the admiration and applause of those that were no wiser than yourself. How much good might you have done with that money? And what an irreparable loss have you sustained by not doing it, if it be true that the day is at hand, when every man shall receive his own reward, according to his own labor? 15. I pray consider this well. Perhaps you have not seen it in this light before. When you are laying out that money in costly apparel which you could have otherwise spared for the poor, you thereby deprive them of what God, the proprietor of all, had lodged in your hands for their use. If so, what you put upon yourself, you are, in effect, tearing from the back of the naked, as the costly and delicate food which you eat, you are snatching from the mouth of the hungry. For mercy, for pity, for Christ's sake, for the honor of his gospel, stay your hand. Do not throw this money away. Do not lay out on nothing, yea, worse than nothing, what may clothe your poor, naked, shivering fellow creature. 16. Many years ago, when I was at Oxford, in a cold winter's day, a young maid, one of those we kept at school, called upon me I said, You seem half-starved. Have you nothing to cover you, but that thin linen gown? She said, Sir, this is all I have. I put my hand in my pocket, but found I had scarce any money left having just paid away what I had. It immediately struck me, will thy master say, back quote well done, good and faithful steward. Thou hast adorned thy walls with the money which might have screened this poor creature from the cold. O justice! O mercy! Are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? See thy expensive apparel in the same light, thy gown, hat, headdress. 
everything about thee which cost more than Christian duty required thee to lay out is the blood of the poor. O oh, be wise for the time to come. Be more merciful, more faithful to God and man, more abundantly adorned, like men and women professing godliness, with good works. 17. It is true, great allowances to be made for those who have never been warned of these things, and perhaps do not know that there is a word in the Bible which forbids costly apparel. But what is that to you? You have been warned over and over, yea, in the plainest manner possible. And what have you profited thereby? Do not you still dress like other people of the same fortune? Is not your dress as gay, as expensive as theirs who never had any such warning? as expensive as it would have been if you had never heard a word said about it. Oh how will you answer this, when you and I stand together at the judgment seat of Christ? Nay, have not many of you grown finer as fast as you have grown richer? As you increased in substance, have you not increased in dress? Witness the profusion of ribbons, gauze, or linen about your heads. What have you profited then by bearing the reproach of Christ? By being called Methodists? Are you not as fashionably dressed as others of your rank, that are no Methodists? Do you ask, but may we not as well buy fashionable things as unfashionable? I answer, not if they give you a bold, immodest look, as those huge hats, bonnets, headdresses do. And not if they cost more. But I can afford it. Oh lay aside forever that idle, nonsensical word. No Christian can afford to waste any part of the substance which God has entrusted him with. How long are you to stay here? May not you tomorrow, perhaps tonight, be summoned to arise and go hence, in order to give an account of this and all your talents to the judge of quick and dead? 18. How then can it be, that, after so many warnings, you persist in the same folly? Is it not hence? There are still among you, some that neither profit themselves by all they hear, nor are willing that others should, and these, if any of you are almost persuaded to dress as Christians, reason, and rally, and laugh you out of it. Oh you pretty triflers, I entreat you not to do the devil's work any longer. Whatever you do yourselves, do not harden the hearts of others. And you that are of a better mind, avoid these tempters with all possible care, and if you come where any of them are, either beg them to be silent on the head, or quit the room. 19. Sixthly. The putting on of costly apparel is directly opposite to what the Apostle terms the hidden man of the heart, that is, to the whole image of God, wherein we were created, and which is stamped anew upon the heart of every Christian believer, opposite to the mind which was in Christ Jesus, and the whole nature of inward holiness. All the time you are studying this outward adorning, the whole inward work of the Spirit stands still, or, rather, goes back, though by very gentle and almost imperceptible degrees. Instead of growing more heavenly-minded, you are more and more earthly-minded. If you once had fellowship with the Father and the Son, it now gradually declines, and you insensibly sink deeper and deeper into the spirit of the world, into foolish and hurtful desires and groveling appetites. All these evils and a thousand more spring from that one root, indulging yourself in costly apparel. 20. Why then does not everyone that either loves or fears God flee from it? as from the face of a serpent? Why are you still so conformable to the irrational, sinful customs of a frantic world? Why do you still despise the express commandment of God uttered in the plainest terms? You see the light, why do not you follow the light of your own mind? Your conscience tells you the truth, why do you not obey the dictates of your own conscience? 21. 
You answer, why, the universal custom is against me, and I know not how to stem the mighty torrent. Not only the profane, but the religious world run violently the other way. Look into, I do not say, the theaters, but the churches, nay, and the meetings of every denomination, except a few old-fashioned Quakers, or the people called Moravians, wink, look into the congregations, in London, or elsewhere, of those that are style gospel ministers, look into Northampton Chapel, yea, into the Tabernacle, or the chapel at Tottenham Court Road, nay, look into the chapel in West Street, or that in the City Road, look at the very people, that's it under the pulpit, or by the side of it, and are not those that can afford it, I can hardly refrain from doing them the honor of naming their names, as fashionably adorned, as those of the same rank in other places? 22. This is a melancholy truth. I am ashamed of it, but I know not how to help it. I call heaven and earth to witness this day, that it is not my fault. The trumpet has not given an uncertain sound, for near fifty years last past. O oh God! Thou knowest I have borne a clear and faithful testimony. In print, in preaching, in meeting the society, I have not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God. I am therefore clear of the blood of those that will not hear. It lies upon their own head. 23. I warn you once more, in the name, and in the presence of God, that the number of those that rebel against God is no excuse for their rebellion. He hath expressly told us, Thou shalt not follow the multitude to do evil. It was said of a great good man, he feared not, had heaven decreed it, to have stood adverse against a world, and singly good. Who of you desire to share in that glorious character? To stand adverse against a world. If millions condemn you, it will be enough that you are acquitted by God, and your own conscience. 24. Nay, I think say some, I could bear the contempt or reproach of all the world beside. I regard none but my own relations, those especially that are of my own household. My father, my mother, my brothers, and sisters, and perhaps one that is nearer than them all, are teasing me continually. This is a trial indeed, such as very few can judge of, but those that bear it. I have not strength to bear it. No, not of your own, certainly you have not. But there is strength laid up for you on one, that is mighty. His grace is sufficient for you, and he now sees your case, and is just ready to give it you. Meantime, remember his awful declaration, touching them, that regard men more than God. He that loveth father or mother, brother, or sister, husband, or wife, more than me, is not worthy of me. 25. But are there not some among you? that did once renounce this conformity to the world, and dress, in every point, neat and plain, suitable to your profession. Why then did you not persevere therein? Why did you turn back from the good way? Did you contract an acquaintance, perhaps a friendship, with some that were still fond of dress? It is no wonder then that you was, sooner, or later, moved to measure back your steps to earth again. No less was to be expected, and that one sin would lead you unto another. It was one sin to contract a friendship with any that knew not God, for know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And this led you back into another, into that conformity to the world from which ye had clean escaped. But what are you to do now? Why, if you are wise, escape for your life, no delay, look not behind you. Without loss of time, renounce the cause, and the effect together. Now, today before the heart is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, cut off, at one stroke, that sinful friendship with the ungodly, 
and that's in full conformity to the world. Determine this day. Do not delay till tomorrow, lest you delay forever. For God's sake, for your own soul's sake, fix your resolution now. 26. I conjure you all who have any regard for me, show me before I go hence that I have not labored, even in this respect, in vain, for near half a century. Let me see, before I die, a Methodist congregation, full, as plain dressed, as a Quaker congregation. Only be more consistent with yourselves. Let your dress be cheap, as well as plain, otherwise you do but trifle with God, and me, and your own souls. I pray, let there be no costly silks among you, how grave soever they may be. Let there be no Quaker linen, proverbially so called, for their exquisite fineness, no Brussels lace, no elephantine hats, or bonnets, those scandals of female modesty. Be all of a piece, dressed from head to foot as persons professing godliness, professing to do everything, small and great, with the single view of pleasing God. 27. Let not any of you who are rich in this world endeavor to excuse yourselves from this by talking nonsense. It is stark, staring nonsense to say, Oh, I can't afford this or that. If you have regard to common sense, let that silly word never come out of your mouth. No man living can afford to waste any part of what God has committed to his trust. None can afford to throw any part of that food and raiment into the sea, which was lodged with him on purpose to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. And it is far worse than simple waste to spend any part of it in gay or costly apparel. For this is no less than to turn wholesome food into deadly poison. It is giving so much money to poison both yourself and others, as far as your example spreads, with pride, vanity, anger, lust, love of the world, and a thousand foolish and hurtful desires, which tend to pierce them through with many sorrows. And is there no harm in all this? O God, arise, and maintain thy own cause. Let not men or devils any longer put out our eyes, and lead us blindfold into the pit of destruction. 28. I beseech you. Every man that is here present before God, every woman, young or old, married, or single, yea, every child, that knows good from evil, take this to yourself. Each of you, for one, take the apostle's advice, at least, hinder not others from taking it. I beseech you, oi parents, do not hinder your children, from following their own convictions, even though you might think they would look prettier if they were adorned with such gewgaws as other children wear. I beseech you, oi husbands, do not hinder your wives. You, oi wives, do not hinder your husbands, either by word or deed, from acting just as they are persuaded in their own minds. Above all, I conjure you, ye half Methodists, you, that trim between us and the world, you that frequently, perhaps constantly, hear our preaching, but are in no farther connection with us, ye, and all you, that were once in full connection with us, but are not so now, whatever you do yourselves, do not say one word, to hinder others from receiving and practicing the advice which has been now given. Yet a little while, and we shall not need these poor coverings, for this corruptible body shall put on incorruption. Yet a few days hence, and this mortal body shall put on immortality. In the meantime, let this be our only care, to put off the old man, our old nature, which is corrupt, which is altogether evil, and to put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness, and true holiness. In particular, put on, as the elect of God, bowels of mercies, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering. Yea, to sum up all in one word, put on Christ, that when he shall appear, ye may appear with him in glory.